invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll need a Bible to follow along. The guys have some. They're going to make back. If you need one, just get their attention and they'll give you one of those Bibles as our gift to you. So keep that, bring it back with you each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Those Bibles are marked for you at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to return to the final two chapters of our study in the book of Acts next Sunday. The theme of the passage for today's message is the mutual love that Christians ought to display for one another. It is said that love is a many-splendored thing, and that is certainly true, because it's unconditional, and therefore it does not depend on merit, nor does it demand anything in return. It's also an act of the will, and therefore does not depend on feelings. But although love is more than feelings, it is not less. The Bible teaches that love involves affection as well as duty, as we will see. And we're going to see today that when service to one another is in fact motivated by mutual affection for one another, then it provides a powerful incentive for continued ministry. Now the setting of our passage today is that of the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to a church in a town called Thessalonica, and he's explaining his actions in the past while he ministered in that city. The Bible records for us, as we've seen in our study in the book of Acts, chapter 17, that after Paul left Thessalonica, accusations had been made regarding his motives for ministry. People were suggesting that he was in it for self-centered reasons, for power and or for money, for ambition and for avarice. His selfishness, his detractors said, is seen in the fact that he left us behind while we're being persecuted. So when the going got tough, Paul got going. He he left. Because Paul's circumstances did not allow him to make a return visit to the church there, he dispatched his young protege, Timothy. Verse 17 of chapter 2. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought... Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Then he goes on to explain that that was not possible. Now please look at chapter 3 then and verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Now between verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3, there's a gap of unspecified time. It's time for Paul to wait for a report from Timothy, who he's dispatched to find out how things are. It's time for Paul to fret and to wait with apprehension. He's wondering, would the Thessalonians believe the charges of Paul's accusers? Would they abandon him? Worse, would they abandon the faith and thereby show their profession to be insincere and Paul's labor, in fact, in vain? The answer comes in the next verse, verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. 
He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul receives welcome news of their love for him. And he describes their mutual love in terms of feeling, in terms of emotion and affection. Today we are going to see the importance of demonstrating our love for one another by our mutual affection for our brothers and sisters in God's church. Let's pray then and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for this sacred opportunity now to be before you with your word open before us to learn principles from your dealings in the lives of your servants that apply to our lives today. We, help you to help, we ask you to help us make that application today so that we will indeed love one another and be spurred on, or on to greater mission for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, on your way in today, you should have received an outline for the message. And I say, first of all, in that outline, that mutual affection results from spiritual factors. <clears throat> Verse 6 again, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news. Timothy has, notice, just now, immediately, right now. So as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing it in response to the report that he received from Timothy immediately, just before. So he's writing immediately upon Timothy's report This news from Timothy is so good that he, right away, upon hearing it, starts to write to them. And there's a lesson already for us in that. And that is, friends, that we ought not to procrastinate in letting our brothers and sisters know how we feel about them. The importance of the report that Timothy brought back is seen in the words good news. Timothy has brought good news in verse 6. That's the Greek word euangelion. It's usually translated gospel. This is the only place in the Bible where gospel is used of general good news as opposed to the good news of Jesus. Paul had preached the gospel of Christ to them, and now the fact that they were standing firm served as a veritable gospel to Paul personally. Paul notes that the mutual affection he will describe is based on and in fact cannot exist apart from their spiritual relationship with God and one another. So verse 6 says, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. And so this mutual affection results from these spiritual factors, the first of which is this. It's the result of our faith. It's the result of our faith. Do we have that, guys? Thank you. Faith speaks of their Godward vertical relationship. Love speaks of their their human horizontal relationships. And we see that dynamic in a number of places throughout Scripture, these twin dimensions of spiritual relationship. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people. And, of course, we have the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. One of those tablets with commands 
that are about our relationship vertically with God and then the other about our relationships horizontally with one another. On the one hand, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then on the other tablet, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not speak falsely. You shall not, uh, you shall not uh, steal and so on. And you have Jesus' statement that the two great commandments are, in fact, love your, the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and love your neighbor as you, yourself. One commentator has said these two terms, faith and love, state concisely the sum total of godliness. I've told you over the years that when you see the word faith in your New Testament, you can substitute the word believe, or belief. And so Paul says here, we're encouraged because of your faith, because of your belief. They believed the truth and had established a relationship with God. And that relationship, in turn, is evidenced in significant part by their love for one another. And so this mutual affection that we are to have results from spiritual factors. It is the result of our faith. It is the result of the fact that we truly believe our profession. But it's also the result of our love, I say in your outline. There was no question that Paul wanted to see the Thessalonians. He made that clear to them. But given the false accusations that had swirled about his motives, another question was, did they want to see him? The answer, again, is given in verse 6. Timothy has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Now, the Greek term that's translated long to see is one that indicates an intense desire to be reunited. The strong yearning is used elsewhere to describe a baby's desiring a mother's milk. Paul uses the same term of his own desire to see his protege Timothy, from whom he had been separated when he wrote to him in the book of 2 Timothy. He said, Timothy, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Now, you all have heard my working definition over the years of of love, and that is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love, doing what is in the best interest of another. But here, Paul focuses not on what we do, but on how we feel about what we do. The place of our feelings in biblical love requires a little bit of thought because our culture has radically redefined what true love is. It's been reduced to strictly emotion and feeling. And therefore, in the culture's definition of love, when the feeling is gone, when the emotion is gone, then love is gone, and so it is, it's transient. And so it is no wonder, then, that marriages that are based upon this kind of false definition of love very easily fall apart when the feelings later in the marriage are not the same as they were at the beginning. But our reaction has been then to dismiss the emotional element of love. And so if we don't say this, we at least indicate it. It doesn't really matter how you feel. Just do it. Just carry on. It is true that love is not only, though, friends, and primarily feeling. It does require a choice, an act of the will. But as we will see, it certainly does involve affection and feeling. 
But the Bible makes clear over and over again that at its base, love requires that we do, that we're doing what's in the best interest of another. And God himself is the example of this. So in the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he did something. He gave his one and only son. Jesus later in the Gospel of John said this, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for, for one's friends. And this same John who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote three letters Toward the end of your New Testament, in addition to the book of Revelation, in the first of those letters, he said this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And as I quoted in today's prayer, the Bible says God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, again, he did something. Christ died for us. So all of these involve action, they involve doing, they involve volition. So love cannot be, should never be, as the culture does, it should not be reduced to feeling. It must involve what we, what we do, and that's why my working definition has been doing what's in the best interest of another. But that was never intended to suggest that we should not seek to cultivate affection for one another or that true love can, in fact, be devoid of such affection. Paul said this in what is often called the love chapter in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you are familiar with it. Some of the verses in that chapter are often read at weddings. Here's one of the things he says there. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body, in fact, to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Notice the kind of sacrifice. Notice the kind of volition going on there. I'm giving to the poor. I'm even sacrificing my body for someone else. But Paul is suggesting you can do all of that and still not have a full-orbed love for those for whom you do it. So love cannot be equated only with what we do. It is first that. It's even primarily that. But it's not only that. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards said that the will and the affections work together hand in hand. In fact, we're commanded in Scripture to have certain emotions. Have you ever considered that? Because we most often consider emotions to be just sort of these independent things that you either have or you don't. I mean, I can't really control how I feel. It just is. But the Bible actually gives commands for things that we're supposed to, supposed to feel. He says, love one another, Peter does. Love one another, but notice, love one another deeply from the heart. The same Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, love one another with brotherly affection. And we are told in Scripture that we are commanded to have things like joy in Philippians chapter 4, peace, Colossians chapter 1. We're to grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who, with those who weep in Romans chapter 12. So what if you don't feel, if you don't have affection for others at a given time? What do you What do you do? And I say, you know, what if you don't? It's not really if you don't, it's when you don't, right? (laughs) It's when we don't. Because the truth is, for all of us, there are times when we don't. 
We don't feel like loving this person. We don't feel particularly loving toward this person. Well, let me start then by providing a working definition of affection for one another. Affection is this, the feeling that results from seeing people as they are. It's the feeling that results from seeing people as they are. So here you have Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because he saw them as they were, harassed and helpless. We are to see people outside of Christ, friends, instead of with the contempt that far too many Christians display for them in our increasingly decadent culture. Do you hear what I'm saying there? That in a culture that is increasingly moving away from godly principles and it's having devastating effects on lives, it's easy to get angry about that. It's easy then to despise the people who are the perpetrators of that. But we, instead of having that kind of contempt, our hearts ought to be moved toward them. Paul says of himself with regard to his own countrymen, the, the Jews. Paul's a Jew and his, and his Jewish brothers and sisters had by and large rejected him and had hounded him in his ministry. And of course, we know that they conspired to, to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, here's what he said, my heart's desire for the Israelites is that they may be saved. We need to remember that every human being is made in the image of God, and that should affect how we see them. And every Christian, that's people outside of Christ, every Christian is being remade into the image of God, so if someone is a child of God, then he is at work in them, but it is sometimes at a pace of change that's too slow for our liking. And so when you see a fellow Christian, do you see them as they fully are or only as the annoyance they can be? <laughs> Every Christian is God's work in progress. Every Christian is beloved by God and is His child. And we're part of the same family with the same Father. Those are all reasons for us to rejoice even when that person is not what they should be. One pastor has said that he's often asked, okay, so what, but, okay, fine, but what if I don't feel delight in doing what God tells me to do? What if I don't feel delight in my obedience? Or to put it another way, as I hear my daughters say from time to time, I'm just not feeling it. What if you're just not feeling it? So what about when, not if? Because we all have those times. You're not feeling good about your service to the Lord. You're not joyful in it. Are you not feeling good toward a brother or sister? Well, this pastor's answer is not simply to get on with your duty because feelings are irrelevant. His answer involves three steps. The first is this. 
confess the sin of joylessness. So what if I don't delight in obeying God at a particular time, which is true for all of us? Confess that. Acknowledge the culpable coldness of your heart. Don't say it doesn't matter how you feel. It does, and we should, and so acknowledge that to the Lord, that there is something preventing you from being joyful as He has commanded. Perhaps we're not feeling physically well, and that's affecting our feelings about life and about others. It's quite understandable, but we should desire it be otherwise, and so that even in the midst of hardship, we can display joy. And joy, I've said over the years, is that abiding sense of delight that God is at work. But if I'm going to have that, or if I'm going to have that restored, then the first step is to acknowledge that I don't have it in the moment. And admit that to God. Confess the sin of joylessness. Because the Bible commands, Philippians 4, rejoice, that is, be joyful. In the Lord always, I will say it again, be joyful. And the second thing to do when you're not feeling it is to ask God to restore the joy of obedience. Scripture says that God gives grace to the humble. And so humble yourself before the Lord. Admit your lack of love or joy or or empathy and ask Him to restore it by helping you to see people as He does, as they really are. And then thirdly, do your duty in the meantime in the hope that the doing will reignite the delight. In other words, don't say, you know, I'm not feeling it right now, so I'm going to resign my position. I mean, after all, I don't want to be a hypocrite and just go through the motions. Here's the problem with that. (laughs) If we all did that, we would have different people serving in every ministry every week. You guys might have me for a year, but then I'm having a bad couple of months, so I'm going to step down for a while. And then, you know, I might jump back into the saddle. It would just be up and down. Your life and your service would be up and down. Don't do that. Keep doing your duty, but do so in the hope that in the very doing that God might use that to rekindle the delight. So the flow of thought in our passage is this. Faith in God is shown by our love for one another, and our love for one another is shown by our affection for one another. The Thessalonians' loving remembrance of Paul is as it should be. One commentator said, quote, Loving remembrance of former teachers is a Christian duty, and in connection with faith and love, it's a fair evidence of Christian character. The late Dr. Roland McCune, my theology teacher, he was the former president of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary from which I graduated, and he was a teaching colleague of our very own Dr. Combs, but every time he mentioned his former seminary mentor, every time Dr. McCune would mention his theological mentor, he would say, my esteemed teacher, Alva J. McLean, every time he said it. That's the kind of affection he had for the impact that another had upon his life. And now, having heard of their affection for him, Paul says at the end of verse 6, in effect, the feeling is mutual. Verse 6, Timothy has told us you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as also we long to see you. 
Now think about this. Couldn't Paul have just skipped all of the mushy emotional stuff? I mean, that's the way some of us, if we, when we focus on theology, that's the way we can approach things. Why don't you just skip all the girly stuff, you know, and all the sappy emotional and affection stuff, and just give the truth straight up, and then we'll figure it out. But he apparently thought it important enough to include all of that. We're going to see he did it in other places as well, because Paul understood the power of affectionate love. I'm not so naive as to think that all is always wonderful between fellow believers. The fact is it can be quite difficult to love each other because, if we're honest, we're often not lovable. In fact, we can, all of us, be downright ornery, even sinful. I usually crack a wry smile when I see those pictures that show a shepherd cuddling a cute little lamb in his arms. (laughs) Did you know that sheep are really not all that cuddly or pleasant? Now, I include myself in that when I say that because I'm a sheep as well. John MacArthur has said of us sheep, sheep are dumb, smelly, dirty, and they have sharp hooves. (laughs) I heard the late Presbyterian pastor D. James Kennedy say, You know, I've got some people in my church who I would not want to be handcuffed to when the Lord returns. (laughs) We might be going in opposite directions. Serving with each other in love and showing our love to each other by what we say, how we say it, when we say it, is not easy, but it's essential to our ability to build each other up. Mutual affection results from spiritual factors. And mutual affection results in spiritual motivation. It results in a couple of things. The first of which is this. It results in encouragement. Verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Now, the word encourage in the New Testament is one that literally means to call alongside. That's an apt word picture of what encouragement does as one comes next to another to walk alongside them, to uphold and to motivate. But biblical encouragement is not just a pat on the back and saying everything will be all right. See, even the world can encourage that way. In fact, that's mostly what the world does. Hey, it'll it'll all be all right. The difference with biblical encouragement is it includes why it is worth continuing on the path. Not just it will all turn out right in the end, and biblically speaking, that is true. But in the meantime, biblical encouragement reminds another of why it is worth it for you to continue on the path. And when you express your love for someone... Because of who they are and what they do, it motivates them to carry on. And the report brought strength and courage in difficult circumstances for Paul, as it can and does for us, to, as I say in the outline, endure difficulty. So verse 7 again, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and our persecution, we were encouraged. 
that distress and persecution. These are two aspects of the same whole situation that Paul was in. The distress speaks of the necessities that force themselves upon one, the pressures that Paul felt. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 27, after describing all the stuff he went through, he said, and beside all of that, I feel daily the pressure of the care for all of the churches. And so he's being pressed down, distressed. Persecution or affliction indicates all of the external things that are bearing upon one in a particular situation. We don't know the exact nature of what Paul was enduring But we do know that he was writing this letter to the Thessalonians from another city, the city of Corinth, one to which he came in, in fact, much distress, probably because of all the trouble he had experienced in the cities prior to getting there. The book of Acts tells us, as we've seen in our series through that, that in Philippi he was imprisoned. In this very city of Thessalonica he was harassed and forced to leave that city against his will. And in another passage, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he catalogs and summarizes the many trials that he faced, saying this, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again five times. I have received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, and from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have not gone and, and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So this is wonderful news from Thessalonica that could not have come at a better time for the great apostle. Friends, this is what the Word of God is teaching us, that God supplies what we need when we need it. I can just tell you I've experienced that. Many, many times. God brings you that word of encouragement right when you need it. So you keep moving. Put one foot in front of the other. You know God has something good at the end. You know God God is doing something good in the meantime. You know why you should move forward. There are times for myself, and and this is not just for me, all of us, when it is so difficult and so dark you can't see ahead. And so you just say to yourself, do the right thing, take the next step. Do the right thing, take the next step. And God encourages God uses people to encourage. Eventually the fog begins to dissipate and lifts. You look back and you see what God was doing. 
God knows what we need precisely when we need it. Mutual affection provides encouragement in difficulty. It also provides encouragement to, I say in the outline, continue ministry. Verse 8. For now we really live since we are standing firm, since you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul and his ministry associates have in effect been given a new lease on life. This is because of the success of the cause of Christ, the winning of souls to him, and now the continuance of those souls in him. That was Paul's very life. And the fact that the Thessalonians had proved steadfast was a demonstration that his work of proclaiming the gospel to them had been successful, and this made life worthwhile for him. In fact, so important was the cause of Christ to Paul that some say that had he received a negative report, it would have been a virtual death blow to Paul. We can't know that, of course, but God certainly did. So, Does it matter what people think of us? We shouldn't be motivated by what people think of us. It's first and foremost what God thinks. Certainly never compromise so that people think well of us. But we do want to see gospel success in the lives of those that God has brought into our sphere of influence. And it's a wonderful thing to see it and hear it. Would Paul have really quit? No, he would not have. I'm sure he would not have quit. But it does matter with regard to how we feel about what it is we do in ministry, all of us. And it was so for Paul. And that's why in another place Paul spoke of that reality. He said, when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us Now notice how, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Comforted us through the agency of another of his servants, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort that you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. He had previously told them how important was this matter of their faith being evidenced in affectionate love for other believers, including him. He said, we opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. We sometimes think or act as if we don't need one another. Listen, if Paul needed other Christians, you better believe I do. When we think that, we've forgotten one of two things. That we are, in fact, in a battle and we need each other in the foxhole. Or we've forgotten who the enemy is. If we turn our sights on fellow believers... You know, it's been said many times that the Christian army is pretty much the only one that shoots its own. So mutual affection results in spiritual motivation. It results in encouragement. And it results, I say in the outline, in prayer. When God graciously provides this ministry to our hearts, it should move us to prayers of thanks. Verse 9. 
How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Now, that's a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is you you can't. We cannot thank God enough for you. And that phrase, in return, is literally repay. How can we repay? Well, repay, repay whom? Repay God. But notice, he's saying, how can we repay God because of you? So both the God who supplies the agent of encouragement and the one who is the encouragement, both of those are calls for thankfulness. We thank God because of you. Sometimes there's a tension people in ministry feel about mentioning our thankfulness for others because they don't want to remove the credit all going to God. In fact, I've known some people who've said it's wrong to give public recognition of our thankfulness for others. That's a false tension. The Scriptures are replete with examples of thanking God for other people. So this Paul says in Philippians 1, I thank my God every time I remember you. And then if you read at the end of Paul's letters, the benedictions at the end, as he's signing off and he says so-and-so sends their greetings and all of that, particularly Romans chapter 16. Take a look at that. It's a great encouragement because you have this litany of names there, many of whom we don't know who they are. They're not superstars. They're not well-known names. But they're people who kept the mission of Christ going, kept the Apostle Paul going, and he's commending them by name, and we have that memorialized now for us for 2,000 years. So our mutual affection results in thanksgiving for one another and prayers of, uh, results in this thanksgiving in our prayers and it results in prayers of petition on behalf of each other. Verse 10, night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. We pray for opportunity to minister to each other for one another's spiritual growth. And we see such a prayer in verses 11 through 13 that Paul says he prays for the Thessalonians. So friends, consider this kind of speech. Speech that thanks God. Speech that goes to pr- in prayer to God on behalf of others. The best use of your tongue and mine is to give thanks and pray. very difficult to gossip and slander someone else if you make, a ha- make it a habit to pray for them. Friends, God has designed the church to be a community of faith. Our ministry as a collective body, a church, means we must develop and cultivate mutual affection for each other. This means, among other things, we must get to know one another. Discover how we can minister to one another. Get to know each other's needs so we can pray intelligently. For far too many Christians, the only fellowship they have with their brothers and sisters is the kind that some of you have had in this hour. It's with the back of their head during worship. And that's it. You see, you can't have this kind of affectionate love if that's as far as it as far as it goes. And a cursory reading of your Bible will reveal that God has called us to work together to accomplish His purposes. 
And if we do not have a desire, then pray that the Lord will give you that desire. And in the meantime, serve God in His work in hopes that the service itself will create the passion. Here's your take-home truth. Christians should express affection for one another. Now, one last thing, and that is, so, Pastor, why did you choose this message? Do we have a big problem? Are there a bunch of people slandering and gossiping each other? The answer is no. I literally know of none of that. It is true that sometimes I'm the last to know, but I know of none of that. And so I didn't choose this for that reason. We had this week. We'll pick up the book of Acts next week. It's simply because I always have believed that preventive medicine is always the best. So let's do what God has said as his church. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this privilege again to be here with your people, to sing praise to you, to give back to you, but to learn of you. Thank you for loving us, Lord, and sending the Lord Jesus, yes, to to save us, but then to give us instructions for how to live what you have us to do in the meantime until he returns. And so I ask you to help me, I ask you to help my brothers and sisters then to take those seriously. To ask each of us, to ask if we are cultivating the relationships to which you call us in your body so that we can love one another in a meaningful way with all of its challenges but also with all of its delights. And so I ask you to do that, to continue to mold the unity of your church here so that we can, as it were, move forward as one man in Christ to carry out your mission. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, Just before we have our closing song, I want to introduce a young man to you who's just arrived this weekend. So Max, if you'll come. And this is Max Muller, and Max is coming to us for two months this summer for an internship. He's coming from the Chicago area, and he is a biblical studies major at Moody Bible Institute, and you are going into your senior year this this fall, right? Okay. And Max uh, is going to spend these two months with us. We've got a number of things uh, for him to do in conjunction with an internship that uh, he's going to be doing some work with at uh, our friends uh, in Allen Park at Inner City Baptist. So he's going to have a fun but uh, busy but I hope profitable time as well. So I wanted you all to know who Max is. We want to encourage him in the two months that he's here. So during our refreshment time, if you can, get by and and welcome him. Uh, Tomorrow at the picnic, you you can do the same. Uh, Max has also got a serious girlfriend back, right? And they're not quite engaged yet. Not yet, no. <laughs> so does that mean you're fair game for the... Or, or no? I, maybe I, <laughs> You're going to have to talk to me about it. I mean, I, <laughs> so ladies, if you want to get your application in, do that, uh, do that fairly early. But <laughs> I probably shouldn't wade into those kind of things. But anyway, welcome, welcome, Max. We're delighted that you're here. Let's stand together for our closing song.